After a few weeks out for Christmas time, we're going to go back into the, into the book of Hebrews. We've been here for several months now, and, and uh, there's a lot of tremendous things in this little book. It's really interesting. There's, there's been discussion and, and talk over the last couple of years in different circles about um, unhitching or disconnecting the, the church from the Old Testament. And in fact, there's some pretty noteworthy pastors who have actually said that the apostles disconnected the church from the Old Testament. Um, if, if you remove the Old Testament from the book of Hebrews, you no longer have a book of Hebrews. It is simply the gospel presented through uh, the, the careful examination and declaration of the Old Testament scriptures, which were the scriptures Jesus was raised with. They're the scriptures that the, the apostles had when they were growing up and that they preached at the outset. They had the Old Testament scriptures and they, they had the, the testimony of what Jesus had done. They began writing. Those writings were recognized as, as authoritative because they came from Jesus' apostles. But the Old Testament was always a, a foundation. Um, one of the most striking moments in scripture comes at the end of the book of Joshua. At the end of the book of Joshua, we're looking at really uh, probably the third generation since the exodus from Egypt. We had a, uh, an entire mass of people delivered from slavery in Egypt by the power of God, brought into the wilderness. The first generation brought out, died in the wilderness. The second generation was led by Joshua across the Jordan River. And now Joshua, in his old age, gathers the, the people of Israel in Shechem. Uh, if, I could, if I could show you on a map, uh, where Shechem is, it, it might, you might remember that um, Jesus met a woman at a, at a well in a town called Sychar. Just west of Sychar was a valley that ran east and west. Sychar would actually just kind of look westward down that valley. On a, and on either side of that valley were two mountaintops. They're not mountaintops to Josh McKinley because Josh McKinley was raised in Colorado they were tall hills, and even to us, they wouldn't be mountains to us, but they were, they were they're tall mountaintops, they're tall hilltops. Mount Gerizim is on the south, Mount Ebal is on the north. That's the place when Joshua first entered the land where he brought the people of Israel, and he split them into two, and the people on one mountaintop, and I can never remember which, but I think it was Mount Gerizim, read the blessings of the law, and the people on the other side read the curses of the law. Well, Shechem is a little town that sits right between those two mountains at, at, down in this valley. So Joshua brings the people of God back to where they had read themselves out loud for each other to hear the law of God and the blessings of, of the law and the curses of the law. And then speaking as God's prophet, Joshua says, thus says the Lord. And then he gives a summary of Israel's history. He goes back to Abraham and God uh, calling Abraham out of a family of idol worshipers and then leading Abraham from beyond the Euphrates River, which was uh, up uh, over in the area of Iraq, to the land of Canaan. He tells how Isaac was born to Abraham, how Jacob was born to Isaac, how Jacob's sons were born to Jacob, how they ended up in Egypt. Uh, they became slaves. Yahweh raised up Moses and Aaron and delivered the people. He did that in two ways. The, the first was to simply free them from their slavery 
And then as they were leaving Egypt and were at the, the Red Sea, the Egyptian army pursued. God parted the Red Sea. They passed through on dry land. And then God drowned the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. And Joshua uh, talks about how God then had acted to protect and bless his people in spite of their enemies. And they faced a lot of enemies during those first 40 years wandering in the wilderness. There was a lot of opposition. And then Joshua gives this, the, the people this command. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve Yahweh, Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether it's the God of which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Interesting that after all that the Lord had done, the, the, the thing that faced them, the thing that tripped them up was idolatry. And that never changed. The people, as soon as Joshua finished this, but the the whole crowd of people, they said, we are there. We will serve the Lord. We will be faithful. And they just never maintained it. There was a generation that was faithful. And over time, then the next generations began to slip. And the, the, the whole book of Judges, which picks up, has this repeating refrain. The people did evil in the sight of the Lord. The Lord raised up the fill in the blanks to punish them for fill in the blank number of years. And then the people cried out and then the Lord raised up fill in the blank to deliver them. And he delivered them and there was peace in the land for fill in the blank years. It, it just repeats over and over again. Much later, much later after this point, after the division of the land into the, the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom, Judah. There was a king in Israel in the northern kingdom whose name was Ahab. He married a woman named Jezebel. Ahab was a Jew. He should have been worshiping Yahweh, but Jezebel worshipped Baal. And she was partly responsible for flooding the land of Israel with Baal worship. And it took over to the point where even Elijah thought there's nobody left. And God has to tell him at one point, there's 7,000 people I have reserved for myself. 7,000. By the way, when God says, I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal, it's not that God says, I've looked out and I know who is and who isn't. God says, there are 7,000 I prevented from falling into idolatry because I won't be mocked. Elijah showed up and he said to the people, he came near to the people and he said, how long... Will you hesitate between two opinions? That word hesitate could also be limp. How long will you limp between two opinions? If, if Yahweh is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. And, and what did the people do? They continued to limp. They didn't answer. See, God called his people and, and he called Abraham out of, out of Ur across the river, the, the river being the Euphrates. And Abraham, with his fathers, is turned toward all of these false gods. And God called him, and Abraham turned toward God. And the people of Israel tried to reach around to both. They tried to say, we we want these gods, we want something else, and we want Yahweh too. And they're, they're crippled because of that. 
the irony is is that then 3,000 years or more after it, God called Abraham. A thousand years after, 900 years after Ahab, after Elijah had rebuked the people, we see the exact same circumstance represented for us in, in the letter to the Hebrews. Just as a reminder, the letter to the Hebrews was, uh, was written to Jewish Christians who were being tempted to go back to the temple system. And they were being tempted uh, probably for a variety of reasons. They were being tempted because the temple seemed to have it all. It was, it was big. It was huge. It was impressive. Uh, the, the, if, you, if you read the, just the, the morning sacrifices, it was a two- or three-hour process of all of this ritual and, the, and all of these events that took place and the, and the, the trumpet players and the singers. And, and you would go as a worshiper primarily to observe everything taking place, but it had to be spectacular. And then they, then they, they come to Christ and they're invited to a gathering of, of followers of the way. Christian at the time was kind of a, not a dirty word, but it, it was kind of an insult they, they called themselves disciples or followers of the way. You would go to that, and it'd be like this. We'd be in a home. There, there'd be some plain guy standing up front with the scriptures, kind of talking about the scriptures. We'd sing a little bit. We'd pray a little bit like we have. It, it was like this. There's, there's no shiny. There's no incense. There's none of all the fancy stuff. And, and frankly, there are people who just say, I miss that. I was raised with that. This just doesn't feel right to me. But there are other people saying, Wow, I, before I could go to Jerusalem at Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement, and I could stand there with the men, or the women are way back there, but I could stand with the men and I could see the high priest go into the holy place, and I know that he went in the Holy of Holies and he offered blood on the Ark of the Covenant for his sins. Then he came out and did another sacrifice and took the blood of that sacrifice in to offer for, for my sins. And then he came out, and they sent the goat out in the wilderness. And I just had this picture of my forgiveness. And now you're just standing there saying, because Jesus did this for you, you're forgiven. And so there are people saying, I need that old system. I don't want to let go of that old system Whatever the reason, the writer of Hebrews is deeply concerned. And he expresses that concern. Let's look. We're going to begin at verse 1 of chapter 6, and I'll read through verse 8. He says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment, And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For ground that drinks the rain which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. 
Five statements are made in, in verses 4 and 5 about the, the, the characteristics of the people who are, are concerning the writer. He says that they have once been enlightened. That, that is, they've, they've come to have some understanding. They've, they've heard the gospel. They've heard the claims of Jesus. And they understand what that means. There, there are people who could say, okay, I understand that the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he rose from the dead according to the scriptures and that salvation is by faith, by trusting Jesus. And I repent and I'm baptized according to my faith in Jesus. I understand that. He says they have tasted of the heavenly gift. They've sampled it. They've nibbled on it. They've at least been exposed to, to what God brought in terms of new life and in terms of the, the Holy Spirit and in terms of the scriptures and in terms of the creation of this people of God that we call the church, the, the called out ones. He says they have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Partake can have the sense of participation, uh, so that the idea might be that these folks were present when when the Holy Spirit was converting people and convicting people, and they saw people uh, being saved, they saw people being born again. Participation can also, of course, mean participation. I was personally touched by things that the Spirit of God did. He says they have tasted the good word of God. The, the Word of God is good. They, they've been able to make connections that they've never made. Remember, we're talking about Jews, the people who were raised with the Scriptures, but now because of Jesus, they've made a connection with the Old Testament Scriptures that they didn't have before. So now they hear the, the, the man up front say, the Lord is my shepherd, and, and they, can, they can put a story to that. They can put a face to that. It's no longer this kind of abstract concept. It's Jesus is the good shepherd. And he says they have tasted of the powers of the age to come. Uh, The recipients of this letter were living during the apostolic age when the apostles were performing genuine miracles uh, comparable to those uh, performed by the Lord Jesus. Miracles were being performed by other people as well. And these are really real miracles. These are raisings of the dead. These are healings, divine healings, casting out demons. They're not the kinds of things that are claimed today in terms of gold dust and angel feathers falling from ceiling vents. And I'm not making that up. These were things that were stunning. These people may have actually benefited from those things. But here's the danger. None of these experiences describe salvation. In fact, Judas Iscariot experienced every one of these. He was enlightened. He was with Jesus. He heard Jesus teach. He he heard Jesus unpack the Old Testament scriptures. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit murder, but I say to you. He He had seen Jesus deal with women. Nobody talked to women publicly during that time. He'd seen Jesus touch lepers. You didn't touch lepers. Jesus had mercy on Gentiles. He was enlightened. He had an understanding. He tasted of the heavenly gift as he is there and Jesus is teaching, as Jesus is serving people and meeting their needs, uh, multiplying bread, uh, calming the sea, teaching his own men. 
Judas experiences all of that. He was certainly made a partaker of the Holy Spirit. He, he benefited himself from what was taking place. He tasted the good word of God. He heard Jesus, the living word, expounding on the written word. You can't get better than the good word of God than that. And he tasted the powers of the age to come. There were at least two different circumstances, two different times when Jesus sent the 12 out on a short-term mission trip. One time he sent them out by themselves. Another time he sent out 70 and, and the 12 with them. And on both of those times, he gave them, he said, go preach the gospel of the kingdom and, and, then, and then heal, cast out demons, heal the sick, raise the dead, give sight to the blind, restore hearing to the deaf. And they all came back rejoicing. If you remember the one story, they all came back rejoicing that they had, been, that they had authority over the demons. And nobody ever said that's written in scripture. Nobody ever said, it's weird, Jesus. Judas didn't do any of that stuff. And yet Jesus calls Judas the son of perdition. Son of perdition is a title, like son of man, son of God. Son of perdition means son of eternal hell. Jesus said to his disciples at the end of John chapter 6, have I not chosen you and is not one of you a devil? Knowing who would betray him, he always knew Judas was never saved. What we don't see in these verses is faith. We don't see faith in Jesus. We don't see repentance from sin. We don't see devotion to the Lord. We just see a series of experiences. Understanding the gospel is not faith in the gospel. You go, to a, you go to a secular university and take a religion class, and if you have a, a conscientious professor with integrity, they will tell you what the gospel is. They won't twist it. They, they, they might say Christians believe they think, they say, but they'll accurately represent it. And so we could say that person has understanding, but they have no faith. Having tasted of the heavenly gift doesn't mean finding life in the Savior. Being around when the Holy Spirit is at work doesn't mean being transformed by the Spirit of God. And being born again, tasting the Word of God doesn't mean believing the Word. What's interesting is how often the word taste is, is used here. In John 6, again, Jesus talks about what faith in himself means. And he says, faith in me is like drinking and eating. It means taking in. It means filling yourself with it. Not, not nibbling. These people are kind of doing Costco religion where you walk around and somebody says, would you like a sample? Sure. But they're not eating it. They're not feasting on it. They're not filling themselves with it. Tasting the good word of God in, in particular is such a, an interesting phrase. Mark writes about John the Baptist being arrested by King Herod. Uh, uh, Herod Agrippa had taken over after the death of Herod the Great and, and was king for quite a long time in, in Judea. Uh, took over right around the time Jesus was born, a little bit after 
and, uh, and, and lived beyond the life of, of Jesus at death and resurrection and ascension. Um, Herod was married to a woman named Herodias. Herodias had been the wife of his brother Philip, who was the governor or the tetrarch in, in Syria, in the, the province, the Roman province north of, of Israel. And so John the Baptist, being an Old Testament prophet, went out and preached openly in front of Herod's palace, probably, against him, calling him to account, calling them both to repent of their sin, of their incestuous relationship. And Herodias, Mark writes, Herodias didn't like it. So Herod arrested John. And it says he was afraid of John. And Mark says he was perplexed by John but he enjoyed hearing him talk. John is there preaching uh, like like Paul does with Festus, reasoning with them about sin, righteousness, and the judgment to come. John is there saying, your relationship is sinful. It's wicked. God is going to judge you. And Herod is going, I don't don't get it, but it's it's kind of fun hearing you talk. See, that's tasting the, the good word of God. That's hearing it and treating it as a, as a source of entertainment and enjoyment rather than a source of life and transformation. If these people fall away, is what it says in verse 6, the people who have these experiences, who, who come close, who are limping between two opinions, the old and the new, if they then fall away, it's impossible to renew them. The, the, the idea of falling away is something that we also see in Paul's letter to the Galatians. He says in Galatians 5.4, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. It's really common in, in our time and in our culture to think that somebody falls from grace when they commit a sin when they commit adultery, or uh, I, I just read about a, a uh, uh, an administrative pastor who embezzled half a million dollars, and people look at that, or they look at the pastors who commit adultery, or have a homosexual relationship, or something like that, and they say, "Boy, he he fell from grace." Falling from grace means abandoning Christ as the source of salvation and turning to something else. And he says, if somebody does that, if they turn away from Jesus Christ, if they've come this far, if they've come this close, if, if they've stood in a sense where Judas stood and then they fall away, it's impossible to renew them to repentance. The Greek word translated impossible here means impossible. It means there's no power. There's no power to bring about that change. There is no power that can cause them to change. Why? Well, because like Judas, they had everything that they needed. There, there's nothing more that they could be given that could cause them to understand more or want it more. And they choose to disregard what they have been given and go back to the old stuff that was killing them. They're like drowning people 
You throw them a life preserver and then they curse the life preserver. As long as somebody is in that position, they can't be saved. Jesus spoke about those who put their hands to the plow and then looked back and said that they're not fit for the kingdom. And and we've already seen what Joshua said, choose this day whom you will serve. And Elijah warning them against limping against uh, two opinions, limping between two opinions, trying to fit these two incompatible things into a single package and say, I'll construct a religious belief system of my own. And rather than feasting on Jesus Christ, rather than making him everything, I'm going to use Jesus as the seasoning on my old life. And then everything is is good. The last two verses of the passage say, verse 7, For ground that drinks the the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, is useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, and it receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. This is a parable. And within this parable, people are the ground. People are the ground. The rain is the gospel. The rain, the rain is the word of God, the truth that comes over and over again. Remember, he's describing people who have identified with the church. They've come into the church. They're there week after week after week. And so as the gospel's being preached, it just rains and it rains on them every week. Every week they they get a good soaking of gospel rain. And he says for those who, who receive that and then out of their life, comes vegetation or in the, uh, in the, the parable of the sower, wheat, fruit, uh, that comes the fruit of new life, the fruit of new birth. There's a blessing. There's genuine faith. There's life. There's humble trust in Christ. There's a hunger for holiness. There's a hunger for righteousness, peace with God, affection for the people of God, hunger for the word of God, a desire to be like Jesus. None of us have those to the full measure. None of those ha- none of us have all of them in the same level at all the time. We wait for the moment when the Lord transforms our earthly body into an into a heavenly body when mortal puts on immortality. We wait to be fully conformed. But in the meantime as we grow in Christ, these things are growing and building within us. I can't remember, I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who made a comment that Christians, especially Christians who've been in the Lord for a long time, are often the most dissatisfied people that he knows. Because as they grow in Christ, they realize how far they've always been and how far there is to go. And what is in this life and what holds so much meaning for them in our young years stops having the kind of meaning. And we grow hungry for the Lord on the other hand, he says, if that gospel rain falls and the land, the ground on, it, on which it falls, only brings up thorns and thistles. That is, there's no fruit. There's only weeds. Sin, anger, rebellion, arguments, unholy behavior. Then that ground, that person, he says, is worthless. There's no value there. There's no value there. He says they are close to being cursed. Close to being cursed doesn't mean close to being cursed, but probably won't be. Close to being cursed means 
The only thing between them and judgment is the mercy of God. That, that old sermon, sinners in the hands of an angry God, depicts sinners at, at a point as, as being like spiders that are dangling above a pit of fire and the only thing that keeps them from falling is the hand of God. Remember, the writer of Hebrews is writing to Jews who are truly Christians who are being tempted to go back and Jews who have called themselves Christians but are not. And he's saying to those who are, who are in the position of their ancestors, they're limping between two opinions. They're saying, I came out of Judaism and I've sprinkled Jesus on my Judaism and that makes my Judaism okay. Or I want Jesus, but I want this too. Or I trust Jesus to save me, but just in case, I'm going to have this. And he says, you don't realize the danger that you're in. If you've not actually put your faith in Christ, if you've not actually turned away from that old sin and those old worthless acts and embraced Christ alone, there is nothing between you and the judgment of God but his mercy giving you time. And God's mercy has limitations. The Bible says that when we die, judgment comes. So at the very least, God's mercy on a person only extends as long as their heart beats. And what we read here seems to imply that it's possible for somebody like Judas to come up to have all of this and then to reject Christ and turn away and then they live the rest of their life and there's no longer access to the mercy of God. We're not talking about people who've never heard the gospel. And we're not talking about those who have been born again in Christ who've fallen into sin, who hate that sin, who grieve over it, who keep coming to the Lord and confessing that sin, and he keeps walking with them in their weakness. We're talking about those who are, are to a great degree, self-satisfied and very content in their religion. And he begs them not to be content. He begs them to be afraid. He begs them to understand the danger that they face. As we, as we bring this home, I think that there are a couple of reasons these words are here, and I've already kind of given you that. I, I think the first reason is that there are always false believers in the church at large and, and quite often in individual churches. It's not guaranteed that they're in every individual church, but it's certainly possible. These are not usually people who know that they're not saved. Some of them do. Jesus said some are wolves in sheep's clothing. Paul certainly had words for, for false apostles, pseudo-apostles, he called them. Jude had very strong words against those who were very deliberately in rebellion against God and trying to manipulate and deceive the people of God. But many of them don't know. They, they come to the Christmas programs and the Easter programs or they come to church every week and they nod their heads and they hear the sermon and go, yeah, I don't get it, but boy, he seems passionate about it and that's comforting to me and I like the music and I heard the testimony Penny gave of 
her Chinese friends and their faith, and boy, that's really nice. And, and they, they literally don't understand that there's a difference between somebody being born again and somebody having an experience. God's mercy prevails today. And so I believe that the Holy Spirit put these words here for the sake of those who are false believers, who are deceived, perhaps, to, to do what the Lord actually commands us to do, which is test yourselves, examine yourselves. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine, of your, examine yourselves. Do you not know that this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? There are whole religious systems that say never question your salvation, never doubt your salvation, never ask. Doubting your salvation is denying your salvation. The Bible tells us to test ourselves. What do we look for? We look for the signs of new life. We look for faith. We look for growth. We look for the growing sense of, of hunger for righteousness. We're not looking for perfection. None of us are perfect. But, but when you fall into that sin, when that sin kind of takes over, is, is your response one of grief and confession and, Lord, deliver me, Lord, help me? Or is your response, well, I'm just going to rework what the Scripture teaches so my sin's okay. I'm going to pretend it's okay. I'm just going to... Because it, it, it's all pretend anyway. It's just a cultural thing. The second reason that this passage is here, I think, is because... God has not only decreed the ends, he not only has an elect and he knows their names, but he's also decreed the means. He brings us to faith in Christ in space and time, and he uses means to do that. He uses preaching to do that. He uses conviction to do that. He uses our failure to do that. Linda and I have some some friends at our church in, in Creighton. He came to Christ because their son was born. He'd been raised Catholic. And when their son was born, he held his son in his arms and said, I need to know the God who made my son. And he started looking, and that prompted a hunger, and he found Christ. Five years later, the little boy was diagnosed with leukemia, and they lost him. And his wife went looking for the Savior for comfort. So both of them would say, our son brought us to Christ. See, God works through the means. He has decreed the ends, but he works through means. Part of the means of God reminding us to examine ourselves, of reminding us of his grace and his mercy and of of our need for humility before him is to remind us how close we were to judgment. Linda and I had a, a motorcycle for several years, seven or eight years, something like that. We rode a lot. I put, uh, I figured I, I put about 60,000 miles on in that time. We were coming back from Sioux City one night. It was summertime. It was nice and warm. It was about 1030 at night. We'd come across, uh, I think it's 98 that comes from Wayne. Is that right? We'd come across 98 all the way to to 81. We turned left to go south on 81. We cleared the first hill or so. 
And we had this helmet system where we could talk. And Linda said, wow, look at the moon. And, and I turned, and the moon had just come up above the hills. It was huge, full moon, absolutely stunning. Three seconds maybe went by, and I turned around and I looked just in, sight, in time to see the doe jump. And I grabbed my brakes, and the bike did that, and Linda slammed against me because she had no idea. She was still looking at the moon. And we rode home. And all the way home, I was thinking, did we hit that deer? Did I, 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 did I feel something? I didn't feel anything. I think I felt something. Oh, no, no, I didn't feel anything. I think I felt something. And just continued to ride. And about a week later, I was out washing my bike and saw that a wind deflector was gone. So I did hit her. And if I hadn't grabbed the brake, we would have just T-boned her. We kept riding. We kept riding at night. I, I just didn't look off to the side anymore, kept my brights on and dropped my speed a little bit, kept my head on a swivel when it was dark, but we just kept riding and, and enjoying things. And it was a year or two later that our friends the Hainuses hit a deer between Hader and Pierce and were badly injured. She had to be airlifted to Sioux City. He, he had, uh, uh, I, I can't remember, I think he broke his leg. Or did she break? I can't remember. Anyway, they were, they were beat up and banged up. And I could never be at peace on a motorcycle again after their accident. I tried. But what it did is it put me back in mind of that, that deer that we missed and realizing how close we were to something bad. These verses remind us as Christians, do you know how close you were? Do you understand that only the mercy of God stood between you and judgment? And these verses chill my heart. They, they remind me what scripture says. There is nothing good that dwells in my flesh. They remind me of Paul's words that Christ is a, price, Christ is a priceless treasure contained in me and I am just a jar of clay, unworthy of that treasure. Reminds me that I'm unworthy of even a single blessing I've received that, that with Paul, I believe myself to be the worst of sinners. And it is only by the grace of God and the mercy of God that I was rescued because I could have died at any time. If you're concerned about being caught between two opinions, that's really good news because it means you see that you're caught between two opinions. And the counsel, the cure is so easy. You let go of the bad opinion. You, you stop trying to bridge the two. You let go of the old life, the old sins, the old religious ideas, and you just turn and embrace Christ. You just turn and embrace him. Father, we thank you for your love for us and for your word. Lord, each, each one of us has spent a good part of our time a mercy's width from judgment. 
Not one of us has avoided judgment because we're good or because we get it or because we're holy or because we're righteous or because we've made good decisions. We've only been spared judgment because of your mercy. And to think that you not only spared us from judgment but gave your son as the perfect full expression of your grace and your mercy. And Jesus actually took our sins upon himself and took your wrath. But Lord, we know that we continue to stand because of your mercy and your grace, not because we deserve it, but because you're kind. And so strengthen our faith and our confidence in you (coughs) as the God who saves. Lord, if there is anyone here who has been caught between two opinions, who is hesitating, you can show them that. You can reveal that to them. You can free them from the slavery to the old and grant them the fullness of faith to trust in the Lord Jesus. You can do that. And I ask that you do that. And Lord, as we come across other people in the days to come, it's not within us and it's not for us to stand in judgment on anyone. But your word speaks very, very clearly, and it speaks to all of those who claim to be called by your name. And so would you give us a loving boldness if the need arises to ask whether someone has truly embraced you with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength, or whether they're limping between two incompatible hopes, incompatible beliefs. We thank you for this day. We lift up those who are traveling and ask that you would keep them safe, remind them of your love. And in Jesus' holy name we pray, amen.